Hello and welcome to the Type 1 Planet podcast. This is Robert Roach, and today I had the honor of speaking with Dr. Tom Inglesby, who is the director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. And Dr. Inglesby is an internationally recognized figure for his work in public health preparedness, pandemic preparedness, infectious diseases, and response to biological threats. And he has been instrumental in shaping the state of our global health security response. You know, he was a senior advisor to the White House, the Biden-Harris administration for their COVID-19 response team, and he helped them develop their policy. He provided technical guidance at global, federal, and state levels. He's given expert testimony to policymakers, and his analysis and his insights on public health interventions have been incredibly important for how we figure out a response to events like the COVID-19 pandemic. So in this episode, we dive deeply into what it means to be prepared as a civilization for a pandemic. Understanding that there's no one kind of pandemic. We don't know what a pandemic looks like after COVID-19. We only know what the COVID-19 pandemic looked like and how we responded to it. So we dive deeply into what it is we learn from that event what it is that we need to learn before the next event and how we can potentially create a real uh, protocol as a civilization to respond quickly, effectively, safely to events like this, how we can uh, manage public perceptions and communications in a way that does not uh, withhold information, does not make citizens feel like they are being kept in the dark or being forced to do something that they just don't want to do. So this was an amazing conversation. I'm so happy that I got to spend the time with him. I hope to speak with him again in the future. He made some excellent recommendations at the end of the episode of people that I should try to speak with. So hopefully this will be the beginning of a small series all around how we can manage pandemics better as a civilization. And uh, being a type one planet is going to be a big part of that. Um, So uh, I'm looking forward to your responses and to your feedback. Uh, Please hit me up on our website, type1planet.net, at type1planet on social media. Uh, We look forward to hearing from you, and I hope you enjoy this episode. All right, hello and welcome to the Type 1 Planet podcast. I'm Robert Roach, and today I'm joined by Dr. Tom Inglesby. Dr. Inglesby, thank you so much for joining me today. Robert, I'm uh, very happy to be with you. So, uh, Dr. Inglesby is the director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, and um, I'm really interested in talking with him today because, as the listeners know, but if you're new, this is this is something for you. The premise of the Type One Planet Project is to develop a working model for a civilization that could sustainably thrive into the deep future. And pandemic response has understandably become an essential category for ex- existential risk. It always has been, but now it's a little more popular. Um, so. <laughs> Dr. Inglesby, you've been working in the field of public health and mitigating mitigating public health risks for decades. Um, and now less and less people are thinking about this as everything's settling from COVID-19. I'm sure that that's not the case on your end. So what has changed the most in the way you approach your work since our real world example of the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, uh, well, thanks for, again, thanks for again for having me and thanks for this kind of opening thought and question. <laughs> Um, I would say there is a lot of uh, serious work going on right now, a lot of attempts to try to learn from the COVID experience and build it into our systems. As as you said, though, there is a kind of a normal human 
reflex to kind of get back to normal and move on to other really urgent or important or pressing matters. So things that might have seemed obvious that we should all do, we, our country, our world should do back in the middle of the pandemic, they're a bit of a harder fight uh, or, you know, kind of more, more, more chaotic than you, you might hope. But for example, there are lots of, in the United States, there is a major piece of legislation that is moving on Capitol Hill even this week that tries to address a number of problems that we experience as a country and to some extent as a world. Uh, the White House has been leading a new strategy since the fall of last year. That's new and important and has the potential to make a lot of changes in our country. The World Health Organization has has really examined what it's what it did and how it provide guidances for provided guidances for countries and has started a couple of new programs and is really thinking about how it can be most useful and thinking about the next pandemic or the disease X that we don't know what the name of it will be, but that we all know will come in the future. So there are a lot of things that I think people are trying to do in a practical way, legal way, resources way, but there's also kind of the pressure to move on to the next next topic. Our center is very busy with thinking through the kinds of things we think would make the most difference. Um, for example, a lot more attention to medical countermeasure development for unknown diseases of the future. I think we've have pretty well established programs for known threats, influenza, now coronaviruses, other things that the world has been facing. But COVID was new and we should expect future pandemic threats that are new. So what is our what's our game plan if we assume the next disease threat will be new? Uh, how do we organize ourselves? How do we make the right investments? Those kinds of things. That's an example of the kind of work that we're thinking about that we're hoping will translate into new resources on Capitol Hill, new attention in the administration, new attention in other governments. So those are the well, kinds of things that we're, that we're doing differently, just to okay. begin. Now, you said that COVID-19 was new. Um, but I, I, I listened to an interview with you from 2018, and it was really it was on a podcast called the uh, 80,000 Hours Podcast. Sure. Highly recommend it. Fantastic show. Yes. And uh, you referred to influenza as the most vi most viable option for a pandemic. You, I, I, or, sure. or something along those lines, I would refer to the episode to see exactly what you said. Um, but why was COVID-19 different? Why did it catch us off guard? if we are so familiar yeah. with influenza already? Well, a couple of like kind of a couple of like milestones along the way, just looking back over the last 20 years or so around pandemic preparedness. First of all, if you kind of go back into the 1990s or around the turn of the century, there really were very few pandemic preparedness programs anywhere. It was just considered to be something that was out of reach for most public health programs. They had very pressing needs. But to the extent that there was any pandemic preparedness going on at all, it was really around influenza. And over the last 10 years, especially the last seven, six, five years, there has been kind of an more focus or more attempt to try to get people to be thinking about other viral families that could cause 
pandemic threats. We know influenza can because it did cause three pandemics in the last century, and it's right. constantly chipping away. And there are new new uh, new strains that we have to deal with all the time. So one of the things that we did as a center back in 2019 was to have a big exercise in New York with different governments, private sector entities that simulated a coronavirus pandemic because our concern was that we weren't placing enough energy on thinking about future unknown threats. What viral families could produce pandemic viruses? And coronaviruses, you look back at SARS, SARS-1, uh, you look back at MERS, clearly they have the potential to cause rapidly spreading human disease. So that was our, our effort back in the end of 2019. Sadly, there wasn't a lot of time between that exercise and the start of our real world coronavirus pandemic. Um, was so that entirely like, coincidence? Was it entirely coincidence? Absolutely. That you were <laughs> sadly, uh, very wow. sadly, um, I don't think it was a coincidence that we were focusing on it and that it happened because it, it clearly had a lot of, that viral family has many ingredients of concern. It's respiratory transmissible. It's caused human disease before. Lots of virus circulating in animals like bats. So we just picked something that seemed that was high on the list, but wasn't influenza to try to uh, engage a larger community around thinking about new pandemic threats. So I still, it's still very clear that influenza is a major pandemic threat, but we do need to be prepared for the other viral families that could generate a novel virus and cause terrible mm. trouble. Mm. So one question I had that I was curious about is, you know, there's so many big takeaways, some of them that you've already referred to from our recent yes. pandemic. What do you feel like we didn't learn as a society and as a global community? What's what's a big issue that we haven't solved that you think of? Okay, if it were to happen tomorrow, I, this is what I'd be most worried about from the get-go. Well, uh, I think what we underestimated, we globally, we in the United States, we, you know, kind of at the the people in the community working on this was the uh, the lack of confidence by many parts of society in interventions like vaccines or medicines and lack of confidence in measures like social distancing, wearing masks as a means of preventing disease. I think many people working in the field presumed that those things would be very self-evidently good and that people would take to them, you know, kind of almost, you know, universal adoption of these things that could save your life or prevent your family from getting sick or transmitting the disease in the community. But it, that just wasn't the case. Some countries did better than others in terms of vaccine uptake. But clearly, even in most parts of the world, there was substantial reluctance, at least a minority of people. So I think there's an underestimate of the level of concern or fear as many different variables you can be br break apart um, the segments of society that chose not to take a particular intervention yeah. and I mean part of that I think is underlying and kind of what we brought into the pandemic part of that also is the uh, the level of confidence people have in government and what the government is saying what scientists yeah. are saying how we come together or don't come together in terms of social capital in society so I think there, at times in the field of pandemic preparedness, there is this uh, this 
predisposition towards a science and tech magic bullet or something that can save us from this terrible disease. And we obviously, science and tech are huge and vaccine was incredible in this pandemic, but it's not enough. It's not enough because so many people have a concern coming from one direction or another, which can be amplified by political leadership that they don't trust or that sends them you know, astray. And the second thing I think, which is related to that, which is I think we underestimated uh, and are now trying to you know, think through new approaches is the level of harm that misinformation or bad information can cause on an overall pandemic response effort. Literally, misinformation literally costs people their lives in large numbers around the world. And uh, so there's a lot of thinking and research now and reflection on what can we do about misinformation, about disinformation or deliberate, uh, deliberately providing bad information to confuse people or lead people in the wrong direction. And those things, they were always part of pandemic planning, but I think they really now clearly are elevated in priority because even if we get the the tools that we need, we're going to be contending with these problems and they might get worse depending on what happens with social media or AI. So there's a lot of, a lot of work to do there. This is such an interesting topic to me because I, I see a, this kind of almost terrible trade-off between Lickers. verification of scientific findings and translating those findings into tangible call to action. You know, there's, you know, and then how do we balance the speed of that communication with scientific rigor, especially when we're competing with individuals and organizations that could just say anything they want (laughs) so rapidly. And so I see this, this incredible trade-off and, and the CDC struggled with this enormously. And uh, I think you wrote in a New York times opinion that the CDC actually really needs to reassess how it, it needs a serious reset, I think, is the phrase you used. Um, uh, tell me about how we how we change the way we communicate around these things. You know, not just obviously there's the process, the scientific processes that happen, but you know, what are what are your perspectives on how we change the fundamental communication strategy around the pandemic? Yeah, well, I think that process is, you know, I think CDC and other big organizations are really kind of trying and have been turning their, you know, their ships of state uh, in the last couple of years. You know, they're really beginning to try to change the direction they've been headed around those issues. CDC really coming into the pandemic was, it's most of its information was really more aimed at public health professionals medical professionals, people who work providing care for patients, and they still have to do that because people turn to them, especially with uncommon or rare diseases. CDC knows more than anybody else or most people because they have scientists there, or they're studying it, or they're collecting information from all parts of the world. So that's still a critical function. But what CDC hadn't done as much of is direct communication with people, trying to under- like understand what do people need to know and with what level of technical detail, with what level of um, confidence, you know, part of the struggle in the last few years was that decisions had to be made early on about what would reduce the risk most for people. And 
more information comes in over the course of a pandemic, things change. We learn a lot. Science is like a daily event around the world. And CDC, as you would expect with scientific information, had to update its recommendations, its assessments. And unfortunately, that caused some people to lose confidence in the system. It shouldn't because CDC is trying to do what it can to be reflected the data that's available at the time. But it, people kind of, you know, talked about it, you know, having a reverse course or changing its changing its information. So I think some of it is setting to the extent that's possible, setting expectations right at the start. Information is going to change. We're going to tell you what we know. We're going to tell you what we don't know. We're going to tell you if we're uncertain and we're going to have to keep changing as we learn more. That's, I think CDC tried to do that, but doing that however we can uh, is really important. That's kind of public health communication 101. And I think the other thing that that is is tricky is, as I think you just pointed out, is the need to be rapid because lives are at stake. You got to make a call, but at the same time, you want to be accurate. And those things can be in conflict. And so I think CDC... Uh, needs to provide information really quickly. It needs to be set up as an operational entity that can move very quickly. That hasn't necessarily been how it's been organized or prepared in recent years. They didn't have the resources to become like a rapid ready room that is 24-7 on all problems that could emerge in a pandemic. CDC also ended up getting asked questions by our political leaders about things like school closures or telecommuting or um, how long uh, how long something how, some kind of societal in- intervention should stay in place. We're closing public gatherings. How long should that be? And in the end, I think what is clear is that the, many of these things are are trade offs in societal values. There is a there's public health information as core, that's part of it. But in the end, you know, whether we close schools, it's not just about public health information. It's about what society thinks about risks to kids and the families that that have kids in them and are going to school. And so we should, those kinds of decisions need to be a little bit more kind of like informed by educational leadership and political leadership. In the end, it's not only a CDC call. We we kind of blame now, many people blame CDC for the things they didn't like in the pandemic. But in some cases, those things really were like CDC ended up having to make a decision. We weren't prepared to make a more complicated decision with a lot of inputs. So going hey. forward, I think hopefully we'll sort that out and get better at this go, you know, in the next time we have to deal with this. It seems like a very important input that I think you referred to in the same article is the ability to collect data from state yeah. and local entities. Yep. Um, and that that would be a major factor in the success of a future, you know, rapid response like you mentioned. Um, you know, if you were able to speak, let's say, to the leaders of all states and local entities and explain to them why sharing this data with the CDC or explain to Congress why they should authorize CDC to collect that data. Why is it so important? Why is having that holistic picture of the United States during a situation like this so important? Yeah, I think you're, I mean, you're really bringing up a very important issue that is before the Congress right now, which is should CDC have the ability to collect data, basic 
anonymized data about what's happening during a pandemic. Um, because, and here's the, the reason why CDC needs that data is because it is asked to, on a moment-to-moment basis, provide a holistic picture of what's happening in the country. Are things getting better? Are they getting worse? In what parts of the country? Are some states putting in policies in place that are making things better or worse? We can't tell unless we have data that compares what's happening in one place or another. Is the virus disproportionately affecting region A of the country and we should take special precautions there? We can't tell unless we have data from all parts of the country. Is um, a particular intervention, either some social distancing intervention or uh, a therapeutic or a vaccine intervention working? How much? Well, we can't really tell unless we know what vaccine uptake looks in looks like in that particular state. And so, the kinds of data that I think CDC is looking for is not super complicated. It's anonymous data about how many people are sick, how sick are they, um, where are they coming from, did they get a vaccine? Um, those are the kinds of simple things. Did they have obvious risk factors for? why they got sick. Those things are important at the beginning of a pandemic for sure in case there are risks that are driving it. Once the pandemic is, you know, all over the place and we're all suffering from it, then that's, you know, maybe a less important question. But at the beginning, risk factors that are driving new outbreaks are super important. And so getting that kind of information and a holistic picture from states is really important. The White House wants to know, the Congress wants to know, and the public and media want to know, is today better than yesterday? Is this week better than last week? And what happened during the COVID pandemic was that many other platforms were able to scrape data from various websites around the country and started having updates that were faster than CDC and seemed like they were more complete. CDC was hamstrung because they can't say they can't scrape websites in an automated way and say state A has 50 cases based on our scraping. What they need to do is ask state A's leadership, how many cases do you have? So we can put it on our website and create an integrated picture. And most states want to do that already, but some states may not, or they may not be as fast, or they may not be as complete, or they may provide data in a form that CDC doesn't know how to use. And it's such a solvable problem. We do this in private sector all the time. Many nonprofits do it. But for because our country was set up in a way where health data really is the provenance of states in a federated system, it would be a relatively straightforward thing to change. But it's that's a subject of big debate on the health. Interesting. And you said that this is being looked at right now. It in is. Congress, was that it? Yeah, okay. Got yes. It. it could be. Potentially, it could be addressed there is a bill that is being reauthorized right now called the, the Pandemic and All Hazards Preparedness Act, which gets authorized mm-hmm. every five years and has been for the last 20 or so. Uh, not quite 20, but getting there. And it's the basis for many of our public health preparedness and medical preparedness programs in the U.S. And so it is right now getting debated both by the House and the Senate. And so things like this, data authorities would be in my view, a logical thing to include in this new reauthorization, uh, as well as you know, improving our ability to make medical countermeasures for unknown threats, 
uh, improving our ability to kind of our stockpile of reusable respirators, those kinds of things I think would be really useful to do. And um, we're hopeful that some of those things will get addressed. Well, somehow something even more controversial than data is medical countermeasures to unknown threats, i.e. Poten- uh, I-, I assume vaccines would fall in, in that category. Um, mm-hmm. And you me- uh, you mentioned, uh, and I think in, in another article, a 100-day mission referring to the number of days well, it could take to develop a safe and effective vaccine after sequencing a pandemic virus. Um, first of all, is this even possible? Second of all, is it you know, how difficult would it be to le- reach this level of preparedness? Well, I think um, it is possible. Uh, it's not possible this year. A lot of things will have to change. There'll have to be a lot of investments, a lot of re- consideration about how we do trials, um, how we evaluate safety. But we have to find a way to shorten the timeline while preserving our safety data and while being able to evaluate effectiveness. And there've been a couple of big organizations that have really tried to break that timeline down pretty carefully. The G7 last year really put out a declaration committing to a hundred day timeline and pursuing that, but it requires each of the countries to kind of think about their own investments and to try to work together on that and breaking down the different components. If you think about, though, what we thought was true going into COVID, you know, the, the assumption was that in a new pandemic, that especially something that's not influenza, influenza is a special case because we spend so much time and energy every year in the influenza campaign. But for a novel threat, the assumption going into the pandemic was that it would take years to find a vaccine that would be effective. But in reality, we saw that by the time we got to the end of 2020, there was a vaccine beginning to be produced on very large scale. So it was less than a year, even though you know that the estimates were many, many times longer. So we don't, we have not gotten to the point where you know we have, uh, you know, we have we've identified all scientific and technological interventions. I think we're just beginning to think through those things. Mm-hmm. And there are new platforms like mRNA and other platforms that are in development that really could shorten things dramatically. I think a lot of it will be thinking through the regulatory process. How do we do things safely and more quickly? But I think we can get there. We just don't have the the precise steps yet. And there seems to be, it seems that there's a trade-off here as well between, you know, obviously making that quick 100 day process happen but also you know there you do not you no longer benefit from the 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 perhaps years of trials and seeing what long-term effects of these kinds of and with this is what the americans seem to be really focused on is our long-term effects you know negative long-term effects how do we uh incorporate that cultural fear into a successful 100 day program how do you, how do you, how are we, how should we approach that messaging? Yeah, I think, I mean, with, with, uh, there, there are a number of essential ingredients around that. I think, uh, transparency around all of the science that's going on is very important. Explaining it and making it transparent, all of the data along the way, not all of it will be not, you know, many people will not be interested in it, but it should be available for everyone. 
then also um, committing to safety systems that are equally transparent. We will tell you when there are signals and how we're evaluating those signals, should there be concerns that emerge over time. There will be some, if it's a new platform like mRNA and it's a new vaccine like COVID-19 vaccine was, then we obviously will have a much shorter lived experience with that vaccine. But we know that the vaccine saves people's lives who would otherwise have lost their life to COVID. And we will learn more as we go and there are no early signals. I'm just kind of kind of repeating some of the strong mm-hmm. the talking points that were used, but would be used in the future. And we won't, if someone says, you know, adamantly, I'm not going to use a vaccine until it's been in the human population for X number of years, then they're probably, I'm not sure there's a way to convince, maybe, I don't know if there's a way to convince that person, but it's always should be weighed against the very real risk of the disease that is circulating. We know a lot about the disease by the time the vaccine is ready to go, and we know what the case fatality rate is in different kinds of you know, different ages and people with different underlying medical conditions. So that information should be very available too. This is what we know about the vaccine. This is what we know about the disease. Should you get it and not be vaccinated? And you know, ultimately, people will hopefully make good choices based on information. Not everyone will see this inf- information the same way, but we need to. We need to do our best to provide information to people, be super transparent about it, build very strong safety systems, be committed to providing those that information around safety signals, which I think was well done in the last few years, but we can always get better. So let's talk a little bit about disease X, which is that, uh, you know, that unknown uh, novel virus that we could encounter in the future. And yeah. You know, uh, you and, and and many others have said that COVID nineteen was absolutely terrible and led to so many deaths, but it was not a worst case scenario. So, uh, you know, Since... what does a worst case scenario actually look like? Uh, and we don't have to go into the the gory details here, but how how bad? You know, for someone who's trying to contextualize how bad COVID nineteen was, yeah. um, and you might want to use, you know, transmissibility or or something yeah, as true. a as a factor here, you know, how bad was it and how bad could it get? Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, there's a couple ways to think about that. Um, at the beginning of a new pandemic, it's very hard to tell what the, a case fatality of a virus is. It's sometimes hard to tell how transmissible a virus is at the start. You need you know, to see it moving around and begin to understand it. Um, but in the end, what we saw from COVID, if you kind of average out the entire experience, and it, there's obviously lots of different uh, caveats here, um, but the overall case fatality rate for COVID, or I should say infected fatality rate, the number of people who are infected and then die from the disease, is still something on the order of one in 300. Um, Obviously, if you're an older person or you had underlying medical conditions, that infected fatality rate would be much higher, um, maybe as high as one in 10 if you're quite old and have an underlying condition, but also for people who are younger and healthy, much lower, far, far lower, far, far, far lower than one in 300. We did see that this virus was quite transmissible. It started 
as a transmissible virus, easily moving around, and then got to be more and more transmissible over time. So by the time we've gotten to the Omicron world, it is a very transmissible virus. So I would say on that end of the spectrum, Omicron is in the realm of quite transmissible and easily spreading for people who don't have strong underlying immunity. But on the side of how serious the illness it caused, while it did cause fatal illness in some people and was a serious impact society, one in 300 all in average, if you compare that to other known diseases, is substantially lower. So, you know, we look at SARS-1 had a much higher case fatality rate. MERS, which came out years later, another coronavirus, had a much higher case fatality rate. Um, Viruses like the Nipah virus, which is a paramyxovirus which circulates in Southeast Asia, much higher case fatality rate. There are some influenza strains like bird flu H5N1, which had a 50% case fatality rate. So if you look at those things and think about, well, one in 300 versus 50%, we, we, you know, we're the, we all are hopeful that a virus or a viral strain in one of the pandemic potential viral families doesn't develop both transmissibility and high lethality. We, while we hope that's the case, we have to prepare for that possibility by all the things that we've been starting to talk about here, by accelerating medical vaccine and therapeutic development, diagnostic development, we should be able to move from the earliest days of a new pandemic to having diagnostics widely available and free across society so people can make good decisions about whether or not to be with other people and whether how to break those chains of transmission. You need diagnostic tests for that. And we didn't have a plan for scale up in this country, we're really in, in most countries. We could do that though. There's no technological barrier to that. So anyway, back to your question. Uh, there are there are combinations of traits and viruses that we have not yet seen before. Uh, hopefully we will not see, but we need to be prepared for substantially higher fatality. We also could see pandemics in the future which disproportionately affect younger people. Some diseases, some viral diseases do disproportionately affect younger people. The 1918 influenza disproportionately affected healthy adults. Uh, In COVID, we relied on healthy adults to do a lot of the things in society to keep things moving. Um, Healthy adults were, you know, part of our kind of our food delivery systems, whether it's grocery stores or restaurants or, you know, moving food across, you know, across the country. So if it were the case that healthy adults were one of the badly affected groups and they were either sick in large numbers or were you know re- reasonably afraid to interact in society because if they catch an illness, they, they could die from it easily, then that would have changed the conditions in the world pretty dramatically. Or if really? kids were at a high risk, parents would have made probably very different decisions over time than they did over COVID when people began to see that kids were at a much lower risk. There are other outcomes besides people dying from disease. There are some viruses cause paralytic disease or they cause neurologic problems like infections in your brain. So I think 
we've seen the COVID experience. We know what influenza pandemics look like in the past. But one mistake coming out of the pandemic would be to say, we now know what a pandemic is. We know what this pandemic was, and we should learn everything we can from it. But we should be prepared for other kinds of global and national challenges, other kinds of other groups that could disproportionately be sicker than we saw in COVID. So taking that in, in into mind when we're talking about a potential disease X, let's imagine yes. a, sim- a similar scenario, maybe a few years down the line. It is uh, a different administration that calls you in instead of the, the Biden-Harris administration. And, and they're mm-hmm. saying it's the beginning of what seems to be a pandemic. We don't know much. You know, what, Dr. Inglesby, what is the most uh, effective protocol? What is What are the first five steps that we should be taking here as a nation? Um, you know, is that kind of protocol designed already? And if it is, could, would you be able to describe it in very simple terms? Obviously, I know you would not be able to go into detail. Yeah, I think a lot of it is described. I don't know if they would describe, people would describe it necessarily as a protocol, you know, but people... I do think in working in federal agencies and in healthcare systems in this country and in other countries do have much more of a defined approach having lived through COVID. It's not perfect and there's still things that need to be hammered out. But for example, if you were in that position and in five years from now, we have a new pandemic that looks like it's emerging either in the US or somewhere else in the world, there are a number of things that you would want to start immediately. You'd want to start a medical countermeasure uh, program. You could call it a crash program, but something that looked like Operation Warp Speed, hopefully even more accelerated by that time by interventions that come between now and then, and be planning on a scale of production that would not just be used by the US, but, but used by as much of the world as possible. We could see that when the rest of the world is suffering, it's not only terrible for those parts of the world, but it also it's bad for people in the US, it's bad for other people. It's in everyone's self-interest if we can move as quickly as possible to vaccinate the world. And it doesn't need to be the US alone, but the US has a major science and technology foundation and industrial base and should be using that talent not only for the US, but also for the world. So medical countermeasures. Second thing is we need a massive scale up of diagnostic testing. Again, we have a really strong foundation for testing the United States, it just wasn't put into play until far along into 2020 and 2021. And we saw how crucial it was to know where the disease was, to be able to measure whether things are getting better or worse and who was sicker and who who was at higher risk. So a massive scale up of testing quickly in the US and in the rest of the world. We would need agreement quickly, and hopefully this would be both political and technical agreement about the, about the kinds of societal interventions that would be acceptable and would be effective. So the good news is that we now know that many interventions to keep people socially distant slow the pandemic down substantially around the world. We saw that. And we didn't know that for sure going into COVID. The bad news is now that there is a substantial portion of society that is very, very unhappy that those things happened and would be much more likely to resist or, that's probably not the right word, be disinterested in doing, having, making those kinds of interventions or participating. 
So things uh, such as closing your business down or keep or, maintaining social yeah, distance. Whether, yeah, closure of public gatherings, moving to telework. Um, yeah, uh, limitations on crowding in businesses. Maybe if kids were the population at highest risk, would people be strongly opposed to closure of schools for a period of time until we understood how to better protect kids? So a lot of questions about social distancing that hopefully we could begin to resolve between now and then, because I do worry that we ironically could be in a worse position in the next pandemic because of the kinds of public sentiment that has evolved around many of those things. I think some of the lessons that people have taken from COVID um, may be misperceptions, some of them anyway, about what worked, what didn't work, and how strongly opposed we should be. Um, reasonable questions, I think many, many reasonable questions about the duration of an intervention, about whether an intervention was appropriately targeted to the right group. Do we need something to do in kids versus older people? Those things are all important questions. But uh, we also should be able to have the kind of political leadership come together and identify things that they're going to recommend uh, across, you know, kind of a bipartisan um, approach so we can get, you know, kind of minimize the impact of a pandemic at the start as we're, as we're still learning and have no tools, have no medicines or vaccines yet to respond to them. So. Yeah. Public trust is another absolute pillar from the very beginning. We're like setting up a communications uh, strategy, which is very reliable. Is you know every day and tell you what we know, what we don't know, what we're doing to resolve uncertainty, the science that's changed from yesterday or the day before. So a commitment to transparency and equanimity and full information um, that's going to be key. And then the other thing that we didn't really have, we weren't ready for um, in COVID was a prepared healthcare and public health system. You know, they're all, those systems are running pretty lean and mean, uh, just in time, just enough space for our normal daily pressures. And we didn't have a large surplus of personal protective equipment to protect doctors and nurses. And so, you know, in very little time at the start of COVID, we ran out and we had no and nurses and doctors were having to see sick patients <laughs> with covid with no masks with maybe a bandana or a, you know a, a 2 liter pepsi bottle cut in half trying to create a face shield we shouldn't those are not technical problems those are investment problems those things are things we could put in a stockpile we can create reusable ppe wow. um, those things already exist but we're just not using them yet so we need to anticipate that there'll be a global reach for the same products and that the supply chain will crash in the way it did before and reverse engineer from there. Like, okay, well, what, would, what can we do to try and reduce reliance on global supply chains? Well, countries could have their own supplies and they could invest in reusable products that don't have to be discarded after single use. So anyway, those are the kinds of things. Some of those things are preparedness things that we need to do ahead of time. And if you don't do them ahead of time, you won't be ready. And some of those are absolute response, crisis response, immediate action steps that would be taken. And I think for the most part, I think they, you know, there would be wide agreement. I think the one thing that I have less certainty about is around 
non-pharmaceutical interventions, social distancing interventions, that whole realm of of activities is just gonna gonna need a lot of a lot of time and thought and engagement. Well that's where I'm gonna do my best to take conversations like this to as many ears as possible. Um just to help with perceptions, help with understanding, help with the understanding of nuance. That's great. And <laughs> and uh my my last question for you is is there anyone that you think that I should be speaking to as well, who is not only a, a good science, you're an incredible science communicator, by the way, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. Oh, that's um, so nice. Well, great questions. It's very, you <laughs> set up a great, yeah, great ecosystem for a conversation. So appreciate Thank it. Thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate that a lot. Um, uh, are there any people that come to your mind and maybe you can, you can hit me up after if there's none that come to mind now of that are also great voices in this space that can help educate people. Perhaps there's books that people can look at uh, that help with the contextualization of what has happened to our society in the last couple of years and how we can do better as a society in the future. Sure. I mean, so many people have been thoughtful about this. Um, I think, you know, if you if you can get uh, leaders of institutions that were kind of in the middle of the fire, like... <laughs> Uh, Mike Ryan at WHO uh, is a wonderful communicator and can explain what it was like to be at WHO, the kind of uncertainty that they navigated and how they made decisions and what they need to succeed in the future, or Maria Vankerkove, who works with Mike at WHO. I think uh, talking to former, uh, form, it's, it's easier for a former government official to speak probably easily than it is for a current government official to speak. So People who were in jobs where they had to make hard decisions or resource decisions. Uh, so we have a couple of CDC directors who worked during the pandemic who are now no longer in those jobs. And maybe they would be able to speak about what it's like to be at CDC and have to think mm -hmm. through all those problems and build the CDC we need for the future. I think um, speaking to maybe a leader of uh, one of the mRNA vaccine development efforts, either from industry or from NIH yeah. or from warp speed would be maybe very useful for people who are listening to this podcast. Just what did it take? What kind of conditions did you all have to put in place? What do we need to do to shorten the timeline as much as we can? I think that could be an interesting, more of a technical solution but or technical conversation. But um also a really good one. Uh, David Kessler is someone who was just recently, I think, um, stepped down from his role in the Biden administration, but he was a key person during 21, 22, uh, maybe the beginning of 23 in terms of overall, um, I think I, for, and I think his title might have been strategic uh, advisor to the president on vaccine development for COVID. I'm not sure if that was right. Okay. Uh, but those, I think people like that are, uh, all had different perspectives and now probably have a lot to say about what they think we should be doing in the time between now and the next time we have a pandemic. All right. Well, those are fantastic uh, recommendations. Thank you. And thank you for your work, both previously, what you're doing at Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, what you're going to be doing in the future. Uh, we owe you a debt of gratitude and I appreciate it for your oh, time thanks, today. Thanks, Dr. That's Inglesby. so nice to say, Bill. I, I am... Very happy to be part of the podcast today, and uh, hopefully we'll connect again at some point in the future as these conversations keep going. I'm looking forward to it. Awesome. Thank you.